This is episode 148 with leadership coach Rob Kalvarowski. Welcome to the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. I am your host, Ryan McGuire. This is a podcast where I get to interview people from all over the world, from all walks of life, who have stories and experiences to share, or an expertise that we can learn from when pursuing our happiness. I cover a wide range of topics because, let's be real, there are many areas and subject matters that contribute to your overall happiness in life. And on today's episode, I get to welcome Rob Kalvarowski, who is actually a client of Sonny Stroudsburg that I had back on a month ago, episode 143 of the Theradelic Approach. Rob actually heard my podcast with her and reached out and said, hey, I think you might be interested in my story that actually brought him to her to get ketamine therapy. And as soon as Rob started to describe his story, I said, yep, you're coming on. This is going to be a great conversation. You have a ton to share with a journey that has been anything but easy. And on this episode, Rob talks about how he grew up such a high achiever, both professionally and in sports. And in living a life like this, putting so much of results in his identity. So when he achieved results, he got the dopamine hit. He felt good. But when he didn't get the recognition is when he started to tailspin. And I know this is something that many of us can relate to. Unfortunately, tailspinning for him led him into some serious, serious deep depression, contemplating suicide, and not really seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, thankfully for him, his family, and all of us, Rob did not go that route. However, he struggled down there for quite a while until he was approached with ketamine therapy, and it completely changed his outlook on life. And this podcast is all about getting people to find their happiness, find their pursuit, all the different avenues that people have, and Rob has a story to share that's going to help so many people out there. So I'm really excited for you all to listen to this one. So not only has Rob changed his outlook on life, but you can say he's a TEDx speaker now. He's a leadership coach, and he's also the host of the Leadership Launchpad Project. And I'm proud to say I was just a guest on his podcast, so I highly suggest you go check that one out. Also give him a follow, it's such great content. But before we get to my conversation with Rob, as I mentioned, suicide was something that he contemplated. So if you are listening to this and it is something that you are thinking about, a suicide and crisis lifeline exists. Just dial 988. That is 988 and it is open 24-7. And if you are battling depression, just know that you are not alone. I know you and many others will find my conversation with Rob extremely helpful. So without further ado... Here is my conversation with Rob Kalvarowski. Rob, awesome to have you on this podcast. I appreciate you not just finding me, but also reaching out and now willing to share your story, which is incredibly deep. Um, I was doing a workout this morning and I was like, you know what? You might be someone that I have on multiple times because there's just so many layers to this where we have the mental health approach, we have the ketamine treatments, we have toxic bosses at work cultures, what makes a good leader. There's so many different variables here. And I kind of want to dive into like each of them 
but that would lead to like an all day conversation. So I almost feel like at some point we'll have you back on and we'll dive into different topics because you are now an expert in so many different areas. You actually now gave a TED talk, which is pretty sweet. Maybe one of these days I'll be able to do that as well. That's that's freaking awesome. But um, yeah, I'll let you um, say hello to the audience in just a moment. But I want to share that you found me on my recent podcast with Sunny Strasberg because you work with her and she's the psychedelic therapist, which I was just blown away by. And so, yeah, I, I really genuinely appreciate you listening and reaching out. So Rob, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, I met Sonny, it would have been about 14 months ago. Hmm. And I went to a retreat that she was hosting with uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz in, um, at 1440 in, in Santa Cruz. It's just outside of San Francisco okay. in, the, in the Redwoods. And yeah, she's amazing. And I'm actually seeing her for some ketamine next week. Nice. Um, but yeah, she did a retreat down here in Costa Rica as well that we went to in April. And it was amazing. And I mean, so I said down here, I suppose, for the listeners out there. So I'm Canadian. Um, my wife and I and our dog, Winston, we moved down to Costa Rica in April of 2023. And it's mm -hmm. part of my healing journey. But it's been absolutely amazing. That's awesome. I hear great things about Costa Rica. My wife actually did uh, an internship there, or she studied abroad there, I should say. She loved it. Um, she's trying to get me to go. She shouldn't have to try too hard. So at some point, we'll we'll make it down there. How did you get linked up with Sunny? Yeah, so like I've suffered from depression for since about 2012 mm. and i spent the first few years like having very invalidating experiences with therapists and then also trying a bunch of regular psychotropic medicines like whatever prescription meds and actually having very adverse effects from most of them it was probably about i did i don't know it was somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to ten with my first psychiatrist Mm. And they all made me worse, and it eventually led to a suicide attempt in 2013. Um, after that, I did a few more therapy sessions. I did some more meds, and then ultimately, I felt like nothing was really helping me. And so, like my last therapy session, the guy said to me, "He's like, Rob, you just have to move and get another job." And I was like. Bro, like I literally walked in on day on session one saying, I know I need to move and get another job, but I need your help to manage this stuff. Mm. And I was like, why are we coming around to like, I already knew this. It's, yeah. Ultimately, that wasn't the answer, but that's, that's another story. Um, but, but yeah, so I struggled with that for a long time. I disassociated for about six years where I just floated through life, not really trying too hard or pushing too much it was very much like oh, i got to be in defense mode because otherwise the world's going to hurt me mm. um and then 2019 i hired a coach started a podcast like trying to get out of corporate engineering where i, I had all these bad bosses which you talked about um and then that opened up emotional intelligence which was very traumatic obviously for someone who had 
um, suicide attempt. And that put me back into therapy. And the great part actually was a friend of mine at, from MIT, he also became a therapist. And he was like, Rob, you got to figure out this. This IFS stuff is really good. What's IFS? What's that, what's that stand for? Okay. Uh, okay. It's really good. You should. Yep. Internal family systems. Okay. And it's what Sunny practices for the majority of her work. And he was like, you need to find a therapist who does this. So I Googled it on psychology today. I found my, I guess my current therapist. Um, and that was what she does. And so that started the therapy journey. I was doing IFS and then, um, and it was really helping me a lot. And mm -hmm. a friend of mine, David Drapkin from psych, uh, psychedelics today had Dr. Richard Schwartz who invented IFS on his podcast because they were working together with the vital program that they run. Mm. And I was like, Dave, can you introduce me to, to Dick? Cause I wanted to have him on the show. And then he came on the show. And then after the show was over, he was like, I really liked you. Like we're doing this retreat in um, December, like last year, uh, or sorry, 2022. Um, and obviously I was like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for me. I better go. So right. I went and I met Dick and then I met Sonny. And that was really when I introduced, was introduced to her on therapy with her May or June of 2023. Okay. So long story short. Yeah. It's been a while. Can you say that was like one of the moments that turned your life around was meeting her and started working with her? Not really, actually. Okay. She's been very helpful. I'm not saying she's not. She's amazing and not helpful. Uh, sorry. She's amazing and very helpful. Um, the big moments actually were basically the pieces of finding my first therapist, mm -hmm. the one that did IFS. She also does EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprogramming, which is the leading, right now at least, it's their leading trauma therapy in the world for they do use it for veterans um ptsd mm. first responders but it's also good for folks um who either had significant or not significant but childhood experiences trauma mm. whatever it's very good um the other side of it was also finding my current psychiatrist who does the ketamine treatment at least that i was doing in canada mm. and so I met him June of 2021, sorry, yes, June of 2021. And when I was walking into his office for the first time, he had me fill out those standards, like how depressed are you? How anxious are you? And for the depressive inventory for, for Bex, I was 51 out of 63. So like basically wow. suicidal, like, it, like to a very high level. And it was not that long later, two or three months later, after getting ketamine treatment, and then he actually ran a genetic test and prescribed me medications that were working for my genotype. Mm -hmm. um, it was like literally like a flash in the pan. And it was like two months later, I was like 20 or something on that scale. Like I was like moderate. And then I like, I still work with him, I still do meds and stuff. And it's like, now I wouldn't even say I'm really depressed at all. I still take meds every day. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I still do therapy and all this stuff, but it's like where I am today versus where I was is night and day. How did you view life before and how do you view life now? What is the difference for the people that don't really understand or can't visualize what that light switch looks like to you? Yeah. It's not a light switch. It's a journey. Mm-hmm. And so for me, what I experienced with my bad boss and also what I experienced in childhood had a belief about myself where I am not accepted for who I am. And it's very common. Um, I work a lot now with folks with mindset. I don't do therapy, um, Mm -hmm. but I work a lot with folks who have mindset. And basically we have, like most people have two or three beliefs that are very core to what they've experienced through life. Like, I'm not good enough. I'm not accepted. I don't belong. I'm powerless. I'm not worthy. Like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had the, my strongest one was I'm not accepted. There were some elements of like, I'm not seen or I'm not heard kind of stuff too. Mm-hmm. And that was when I had my toxic boss was like, that's why it was so traumatic to me was like, I had built my entire life to be seen and recognized and accepted through performance. And so in school, get A's, your teacher Mm -hmm. goes, wow, you're wonderful. Your parents go, wow, you're wonderful. In sports, you work really hard. You know, you score goals, you play well. Your coach goes, yeah, you're wonderful. Your teammates go, yeah, you're wonderful. We want you on the team. And that led me to high levels of performance. Like I was on the junior national water polo team. I won a natty. Um, I went to MIT. I got a mechanical engineering degree at like the, you know, one of the top programs in the world. And then when I went to work, that same level of performance actually got me a lot of pushback because folks didn't want to change. There was lots of the ego. And it was like, after, I don't know, a year, a bit more than a year working there, I felt like they didn't want me. Mm. It wasn't like, it was like, yeah, my work they didn't want, but it was like, ultimately it was like, that was a reflection on me. And I felt powerless to affect change on that level. And so it was basically landed in this element of despair. I'm powerless to change my situation. And if they don't want me, then then what Mm. I talk about, it's not the suicide attempt. It's the next morning. I woke up. I knew my job was killing me, but I got dressed and I went to work. I didn't quit. I didn't move to the beach. I didn't, you know, I had the ability to literally just be like, yeah, I'm not coming into work. And I could have like moved to go back to live with my parents. Like, this was not like this unachievable thing. But it's like your brain, you must work and you must achieve at work because this is who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's why you go to work. And now, obviously, I'm a leadership coach. I've 
moved to Costa Rica. I got married. I got a dog. I did a TED talk. Like all of that was not to try to get me acceptance and self worth. Mm-hmm. That's from a place of like, no, that's pretty fun. Or like, right. I, like I've always wanted to live somewhere tropical, but it was like, it's never been a thing. Cause it's like, well, you got to work a job. You got to live in Canada or USA. You got to be blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, you know what? After COVID hit and we, we went remote, it was like, we could actually do this. <laughs> That's and awesome. We just, it took a little while, but then we did it. So I, I'm writing down notes as you're talking. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. It just seems like you were taught to be more result driven and to live up to perhaps other people's expectations. And that was tied to your identity. So when you weren't, let's say, getting the results or the praise from your managers or management, your identity was basically taking a massive hit, which pretty much led you into depression. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's, I'm not like, I'm not alone in this. Like Tony, um, we talked about his pod from the few, yeah, he had the same experience basically, right? Mm-hmm. Is like he was the CEO, he was the like high powered guy, but then he felt like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And I coached an Olympic gold medalist and I asked her, I was like, I was a joke, but I said, like, how long did the medal last? Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, I was standing on the podium and I was like, what do I do now? Like, who am I now? And that's such a common, basically, all my clients have some version of this. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's not always like Olympic gold medalist or CEO, but it's like they did their goal. And then now it's like, well, am I enough? Like what else do I have to do to prove to myself that I'm enough? And so ultimately this externally validated mindset, it always ends up in eventually you will hit a wall. It may not be like I hit it when I was, you know, 23 you know, Tony hit it much later. Some, some of my clients, they're like 60 and they're like hitting it then. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but it's always going to end up in hitting a wall at some point because nev- nothing will ever be perfect where you just, you know, mm-hmm. win forever and nothing ever bad happens to you. What is the solution when someone comes to you like the Olympian that says, I achieved my goal, right? I got a gold medal. That is basically what they trained their life for and they achieved it. They got it. What is the solution after that? Is it to find another journey, to find another passion and follow that path? Or I'm genuinely curious what you tell your clients once they achieved the pinnacle of all achievements. What do you do then? It's not about achievement. That's the trap, right? Mm. Buddhism has a tenet which is about life is suffering. And the direct translation is more around life is thirst. Mm. And the thirst is for the next thing. The new iPhone, the the next promotion, the, you know, climb a bigger mountain, go to outer space, go to Mars, go go to the next, you know, like Mm -hmm. that next thing to prove to yourself that you are 
acceptable or good enough or loved or powerful, whatever those beliefs you have about yourself. Mm. But in Buddhism, how they approach it is like, if I can train my mind, I can let go of desire. I'm not saying that's the answer. It's not the answer, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just like Tony said, like, we're not about not success, but it's what he had in his transformation, right? Which is like, Mm -hmm. he left his job of this is what you should be, or you, you know, society says this makes you happy. And it's like, now I do something different. Mm -hmm. That's more in line of who I am and my purpose and my impact. And now I'm even more successful. Like he says that on the show, Mm -hmm. right? And for me, it was like, I left corporate engineering, which I was making, you know, I was making six figures. I had paycheck coming in every two weeks. Like my parents thought it was good, right? Mm -hmm. But I was, I hated it. Mm. And it's like now it's much more entrepreneurial, right? Like there's no steady paycheck. It's like, you know, you land clients, you do jobs. Money comes in, sometimes it doesn't, that's life, but I'm free. I can move to Costa Rica. I can do a TED Talk. I can do these things that I want to do because that's who I am. But it's also, I'm impacting thousands of people now versus when I was an engineer. I mean, I suppose my work was doing stuff, but like, you don't really see that. Now, when you were an engineer, when you were at this job, did you have a voice in the back of your mind saying, I'm meant for something else? Like I could do something else. I shouldn't be here. I should, because I imagine there's a lot of people, a lot of people that go to work a nine to five, their office, that they freaking hate it. They're just there to collect the paycheck, kind of like what you were doing. But And they knew their calling was something else. Did you have a voice in the back of your head like, I should be doing something else? This is where the internal family systems, the parts work comes into play, right? Is people have many voices in their mind, Mm. right? There's people that are like, hey, you better do more. Hey, you better move to the beach. Hey, you know, that promotion's for you. Hey, maybe I would feel better if I uh, ran in my own surf company, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever that is. But it's one is starting to tune into those voices and realize that, yeah, you're not crazy. Everybody has lots of those voices. Right. Right. That's the first thing. The other side of it is starting to deeply understand what are those parts that you have that are designed to protect you from pain versus who you truly are, Hmm. right? And the ones that protected me from pain were the ones that were like, Rob, you work harder, you get results, this is who you are. Because if you get results, people will like you and accept you. And it doesn't matter about you. Work yourself to burn out. I don't care. You work harder and then you do it. Hmm. And even the suicidal part, like this is the part that a lot of folks don't understand is the suicidal part or or if you you know suffer from addiction that part's trying to help you it's not yes my suicidal part's trying to kill me but it's trying to actually help me from experiencing pain that right. it thinks is going to last forever 
And once you lean into that with love and compassion and allow it to realize that you validate it for it trying to help you, that's when it can relax and let go. Mm. And that's really the secret is we're often taught to like stuff it down and like push through. But it's like, or, or like with the addictive parts, like a lot of some other programs, they're like, well, you know, you just reframe it and basically tell it it's wrong. Mm. And it's like, because it's illogical. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course it's illogical, but it's like, that's not the, telling it it's wrong is not the answer. It's, it's like a kid. It's like, it has a perspective. Often it's very young and it's like leaning into it with like basically your mom or dad hat on and mm. going like, tell me about, yeah. I love you. I totally understand why you're coming for me that way. Now, what happens if we just change your perspective a bit? Hmm. And it's funny you just said mom and dad, because a question that I have, I was going to ask you probably about right now um, that I consider to be very important. I've listened to some of your episodes. I know how you talk about how like, the vast majority of like what you feel, the emotions you feel um, on a daily basis today are formed, I believe you said between the ages of like zero and seven, correct? Um, yes. Knowing that I'm going to be a father, this is very important to me. If you were to give me advice about perhaps advice to give my son or ways to speak to him, um, just ways to parent him properly, or if you can go back in time, how would you advise me to do that properly to ensure as much as possible that my son is happier, not so results-driven, but perhaps enjoying the process and the journey and not just trying to achieve all the time? Yeah. So, Ryan, there's no perfect answer to this question. (laughs) (laughs) Like literally you could get two psychologists who have a baby and their kid will still have trauma. That's not even a question. That's just fact. Mm -hmm. Now, again, right. I always speak to trauma being on a spectrum from basically one to a hundred because I don't think anyone's a zero. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. So of course they wouldn't be a hundred because a hundred would be like very dark and big things, right? Mm-hmm. But they would have mm-hmm. some. The, the big thing, Peter Levine, who's an expert on trauma, um, he, he says basically that like trauma is a hard experience without an empathetic witness. So what that means is, and this is true in a sense that some of the deeper work that you can do with yourself is, is like, going back and visualizing yourself in these moments where you feel pain and then you, as you are today, going and being your empathetic witness to that child that was hurt in your past. That's a big thing. Mm. So when you're, you know, your kid falls and hurts their knee or like, um, you know, they fall off their bike or, or, you know, someone at school calls them stupid or whatever, like though, when those things happen, it's like leaning into your kid with empathy and making sure that they experience that. Mm. There is stuff that you just won't be able to 
control, right? Is like they go to school, the teacher says something, you never, maybe you never hear of it. Like these are things that just happen. The other thing to just realize is they're a kid. And so imagine you're five years old, like literally something that you do as a parent that, like I always use this example is like, what happens if you saw, you know, you were a kid, like you're five years old and your older brother or older sister who was, I don't know, 10, you know, they got an A on their math test and your mom said, hey, I'm really proud of you and for getting an A and, and hugged them. Like, absolutely a completely reasonable and actually probably a good thing to do if you're mm-hmm. a mom, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're not saying like, this is a anything but you could have real you could have had that belief form in the moment is like my mom will be proud and love me if i do achieve right Mm -hmm. and so it's like it's not that the mom did anything wrong it's not that the the you know son or daughter like older brother or sister did anything wrong anything it's just like you're a child interpreting the world through child's eyes Mm -hmm. and so it's one is you need to give yourself grace as a dad. The other thing is just, yeah, it's just opening up the conversations around emotions and then also just being very empathetic to your kid. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them on everything. Also, empathy is not, is not sympathy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sort of like, I get a lot of leaders that ask me, not about their kids, but like about like their staff. Like, how do I hold my staff, how do I be empathetic, but also hold them to results, right? Because you don't want your kid being like, oh, that's, this means I can just like do nothing at school, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like, they're two different things. And so you can be empathetic, but you can also care about them enough to hold them accountable to doing well in school. Mm. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. It does. Um I just reread the book, The Four Agreements, if you're familiar with that. And one of the agreements is always try your best. And I think that's just something we hear all the time. But if you take a second and just think about it, like, are you always trying your best? And that's something that I kind of want to pass down to my son is just try your best. We can celebrate that no matter what the result is. And the results will come at some point if you're always trying your best. Um, I'm curious, looking back, when you were young, what was the thing or perhaps some things that happened between the age of zero and seven that kind of perhaps instilled these results-driven lifestyle of you that in turn led you down kind of like a scary path, if you will? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was my dad was interested in different things than I was. Mm. And so it's not good or bad. It just was. Mm. And so at school, like a lot of the, you know, the boys, I guess my friends were into hockey and sports and, and my dad was not into that. And so I was doing a lot of those things and my dad was not interested in doing those things. And so that led me to feeling like he didn't accept me at home. And then once I, you know, I started getting into sports and like I had coaches who were like adult men, right? And they were basically like quasi playing the role of dad, right? Is like if I work hard in the pool, then my coach says, hey, Rob, good job. Or like, 
keep up the great work or like those things. And that just reinforces that element. And then the other side was like in the academic side of it, it was like my parents were very obsessed about school. Mm. And so it was like, you have to get good grades all the time. And it was like, if you got a B, it was like a massive disaster. <laughs> um, wow. And so it was like, that was very much both of their focus. My mom and my dad was like, you got to get, do well in school so you can get into a good college. So then you can get the, you know, the great job with a white picket fence and a wife and, you know, one and a half kids and a dog. Right. Mm. But then it's like, you have that moment, which I did when I was a lot younger, but um, it's like, you have that job and you're like, yeah, but I like the whole world lied to me. Like this is supposed to be happiness. Mm. And like, but yet I want to kill myself. And you're like, even, it was even funny, like maybe about six months ago, I was in ketamine and I was like, it's very ironic that like, like I didn't take drugs because I was playing sports, right? So I didn't do drugs until I was like 31 or something. Like when they made um, cannabis legal in Canada, I did it like hmm. a couple of times and whatever. But I was like, it's kind of ironic that like you, you quote unquote do all the right things. And then you're 35 sitting in a chair doing ketamine because you want, because you hate yourself. And it just is like this funny thing that you're like, yeah, like a lot of the things that we teach our kids or we learn as kids is like, it's not actually how the world works. Mm. I want to dive into ketamine therapy in just a moment. Um, yeah. I'm curious though. When you were that young, and it seems like you had a ton of pressure on you from your parents to just continuously achieve, did you realize the pressure in the moment? Or is this something that you were just happy, you worked hard, and you were happy to achieve the results they wanted, and then you look back, and you're like, God damn, I was under so much pressure? Or was that something you just felt every day? I didn't, I didn't feel it. And this is no. the part, right, is like... Um, and, and you would, since you've listened to the show, right, is basically our mindset, I like to describe it as the operating system. And as, you know, it's formed with a bunch of rules that make you keep going. In our mindset, it's beliefs, but basically those rules or beliefs kind of govern how you see the world. And Luckily, I was born in 1988, so I can say I'm running Windows 1995. <laughs> <laughs> but now, you know, I'm 35. I got a job. Well, I'm quasi-entrepreneur. Like, I live in Costa Rica. I'm married. I got a dog. I, you know, like, I have 2024 hardware. Mm. But I'm wondering, I'm running Windows 95. And it's like, it makes sense that some of those rules don't work for your current responsibilities. And so that's where it's like strategically looking at yourself. And this is the part, right? Is like 95 to 97% of the decisions you make every day are subconscious. You don't realize you make these decisions. That's what it is. And they come from that operating system. Like when you hit the button, the on button of your computer, it does stuff. And then you get a screen that says like, now you can do your stuff, right? Mm -hmm. The same stuff, right? Is like you wake up in the morning, 
you know, you put your pants on, you don't really think about which leg first or whatever. You know, if you play sports, um, like you, you probably, it looks like you play baseball, right? It's like, you're not thinking on a swing, like, well, I gotta like move my arm in a certain right. way. And right. like, and then when I run, I have to, well, left foot first and then right foot and I'll <laughs> push your toes. Right. It's like, it just happens. Mm. And it's like, it's like when you've driven to work or you've driven to the store and you like, you're like, shit, how did I get here? Right, right. Right. And so those decisions are coming from beliefs that you were basically a kid, like zero to seven. And they're impacting you today. Mm. And so for me, when it was like, I'm not accepted, it was like, well, I learned that like, hey, I can be accepted if I do stuff and I get results. And so like when I was doing well in school, it was like, I felt good because like I was getting basically the affirmation and the validation of like, you're working, like you're getting an A, great. Your mom likes that. Your dad likes that. Your teacher's like that, right? And then in sports, it was like, hey, you're doing well. You know, you're scoring goals. You're playing well. Your coach is like that. Your, your teammate's like that. And then that's how it sort of reinforces that behavior. Mm. And so this is where one is bringing that stuff to your awareness. And you're not going to be able to distinguish right now, like, hey, I'm not good enough. But we always start talk about is the emotions or the windows to the beliefs. Mm. And so when you feel those frustration or anxiety or fear or avoidance, start to question like, what does that mean? Why do I feel this way? And then start to go deeper is like, what's the belief about myself? So it's an I am or I am not statement, basically, mm-hmm. that would make me feel this way in this moment. So it's like, and this plays out into your regular life, right? Like, you know, hey, I'm running a business. Like, should I send a proposal to somebody to like try to get, you know, coaching gig or like try to sell them a program? And if your brain's like, well, Rob, you know, they don't like you or like they don't accept you. You don't have that necessarily that thought, but some folks just don't send the proposal. Like I literally work with an entrepreneur and she had a client say, hey, send me a proposal. I will pay you. And she didn't do it for two months because mm. she had that mindset of like, basically it was like, I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy. The imposter's like, like, we yeah. worked on it. Now she sent it. But yeah, mm. it's, it's everywhere. It really is. And if you don't mind me asking, I'm genuinely curious. Um, if your parents are still alive, do you have a relationship with them? Have yep. you had a conversation with them about any of this? Like, what does your relationship look like with them today? Yeah, they're still alive. I was visiting them in, I don't know, September or whatever. They're coming down to Costa Rica in a month or so. Yeah. Um, they know I struggle with mental health. I haven't talked to my dad about um, this stuff because he's, he's kind of an old school, doesn't believe mm. in mental health kind of person. Um, again, it's not his fault because his mm. dad was literally in World War II. And there was a lot of, I'm sure there's trauma, like there's trauma there. Yeah. yeah. His, like my grandfather never dealt with it and it was passed along to my dad and it's passed along to me. And so ultimately, like for you as a dad, it's like 
the true advice is to like do your own therapy and do your own healing and like do your own mindset work because that's the best way to make sure that your kid is going to feel the best way they're going to feel. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. My last episode um, with Emily Sanders was a therapist about dealing with guilt and shame um, was about like, how does this stop with me and uh, make sure I'm not passing this on to my child that granted, like I'm going to be the best filter as possible, but you can't like you said, you can't filter everything. Can't be over my son 24 seven. I'm going to have to send him away to school and some other places. I just can't keep tabs and everything, but uh, I appreciate you saying that. I'm going to do the best that I possibly can. And uh, I'll be documenting my journey uh, along the way. Um, Just to continue on your journey a little bit before we get to the academy treatment. Like, so I want to be clear for the people listening to this, you graduate MIT. You're obviously brilliant. Um, You know, the sharpest, Sharpest tools go there, if you will. Sharpest tool or sharpest pencils in the box. Um, so you graduate from there, you're brilliant, you get a good job, and you start finding solutions. It kind of sounds like you created some ripples in the water uh, by you finding alternate solutions and perhaps solutions better than other people are finding them, uh, which probably led to envy. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts for people tying so much of their happiness or self-worth to their job. Again, it's not their fault. Right? Like I was that. Yeah, a lot of us are, for sure. But it was also the reason why. Yeah, and it was also like the reason why my boss was a bad boss. Mm was he had his identity wrapped up around his job and he couldn't allow this new engineer to save the company tens of millions of dollars because he looked bad because, well, in his mind, he mm-hmm. looked bad, right? In reality, he would actually look good because, right, he would be the person who hired the person who did these things. And like, it's not his job to do this, right? He's the manager right? He was running a hundred people. Like he should have, like he wants, he should want his team to do these things. Right. But because of his mindset, which was, you know, basically similar, which is like, my job's my identity. I have to be right. I have to be smart. I have to be, he wouldn't allow that stuff to basically leave the office Mm. or leave anything other than like where it was. And so it's like, I work with leaders now, like that's my job. And it's like, the reason we do so much work with mindset is that's the true unlock. Mm. And it's not just me, like Harvard Business Review reports that companies spend $356 billion a year on leadership development and only 25% works because only 25% addresses the mindset and it's the same, like I did a TED talk in June and, and it was like, there's six types of destructive leaders, as the research calls it. 65.1% of the folks listening to this podcast right now have a bad boss. Of course, there are many different forms, but all of the bad boss behavior is mindset. Mm. It's not their fault. It's like what they've learned through their childhood. And it's like, 
if they don't do the deeper work, that's what leads them to be the various forms of bad bosses. But it's all fixable. And that's Mm. the biggest thing is being courageous enough to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? I don't have it all figured out, but I'm willing to try. And I'm willing to go on this journey to learn more about my own experience. And basically, I'm willing to risk my identity to get everything I could possibly dream of. And it's not common that folks do this voluntarily. Like, I would be dead if I didn't do it. I was forced to do it. Mm. But now I sit on the other side and I go, holy shit. (laughs) My life is so incredible beyond what I could have imagined. Super happy to hear that. I, I want you back on at some point to talk about leadership and these toxic bosses because no doubt in my mind, people are listening to this be like, my boss sucks. How do I deal? How do I deal with this? My life is miserable because of this. Do I quit my job? I feel like that would be another, that's a whole episode in itself. <laughs> and I know we've got to get to like ketamine treatments and stuff like that. So I want you back on to talk about that because I know you you run your own podcast with a lead, your leadership coach and the Leadership Launchpad Project. I do want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah just briefly. before we jump forward. Yeah, um, yeah. So I did do a TED Talk on how to deal with an asshole boss. It's not yet up on YouTube. Okay. But if folks want to go to howtodealboss.com, I have a free ebook there. And then That's I awesome. also have a, it's like a mini course. Um, and if you get the ebook, there's a $50 coupon in there for the program. So like the program's like 200 bucks. Awesome. But yeah, it'll teach you that stuff or you can just send me an email. Yeah. And then, and then come back out. We'll, we'll dive deeper into this. I also want to say, it's funny a year ago, a year ago, literally a year ago, I was at a company overworked, completely burned out. Um, I take a lot of pride in producing results like you. Um, Not very often did I have a job where I just like, I think I'm going to quit without even having anything lined up because I was that miserable. It was really a drain on my energy. It was a drain on my new marriage. It was like, I was getting messages at night to hop back on and help with stuff. There was no respect of time, um, no value on mental health and recharging your batteries and what that looks like. And yeah, it's, it was it was miserable. Um, I can say that with a smile on my face because I found a job that values mental health, time off, recharging, resetting your ba- batteries, setting boundaries. Um, it's funny that I actually have a book, right? It's right here. It's called Time Off about how time off can, we, we're required to read this in the onboarding process about how that can actually produce better results than just grinding 24 seven, just burnout. But I say all this because, I mean, I, I, I found this opportunity with a company I love. I, I chased it, I went after it, but ultimately I had to leave the position I was in. Do you, how often do you find that being the solution is just for somebody to say, listen, this, I'm stuck with this toxic boss and work culture. I need to leave. 
Is that the solution, would you say, majority of the time, half the time, only some of the time? I know there's different scenarios. I just wanted to get your thought on that. Yeah, it's definitely some of the time, right? Yeah. Like you mentioned it, right? As like you're a new and and congratulations on your new job. Sounds Thank amazing. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, but but that's part of it, right? And and it's like ultimately the six bad boss types. Some of them, of course, like there's like the arrogant and violent boss or like the abusive narcissistic boss. Like these are bosses that are like directly abusive and potentially violent towards you. Mm. Right. It's about, actually it's about 25% of boss of people experience a boss like that. Mm. So like, think of like Gordon Ramsay on hell's kitchen where he's like throwing the plate on the ground and yelling at people, right? Those bosses, they're not going to change unless there's some like drastic moment in their life where they're forced to. And so if you work for somebody like that, quit. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course, like financially and all these other concerns, but like basically get your resume, go on, reach out to your network, like create a plan to leave because that's ultimately what's going to help you a lot. Like there's an extent to the self-work that you can do, but if you are under that kind of traumatic experience as a day to day, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Like your, your experience on a day to day basis will sort of like override the ability for you to, to actually heal. Mm. because you're literally in the trauma. So just be aware of that, folks. But I mean, there are bosses that are not obviously the violent or abusive types. There's some that are called like messy bosses. Basically, they're not good at planning and scheduling. So they, do, they would just kick something and be like, hey, Ryan, um, you know, can you work on, you know, the slide show? And then I would just walk away. <laughs> and like, I wouldn't tell you like, what am I looking for? Or when's it due? Or like, it would just be like, yeah, Ryan, you just do that, figure it out. And like, you know, that can be for some folks, if you're very like a SME expert and you like to like lead yourself and like do whatever that can be empowering. Like some, I have clients that are like, I have a boss like that, but I love it. Cause like, I just want to go out and do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Great. Other folks, like let's say you're new to the company or you're new to the role or Maybe you're not quite sure about like how to navigate this stuff. That can be very disruptive because you're like, well, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Like the guy didn't tell me like, mm-hmm. right. Like, mm-hmm. Anything. He just said, do the slideshow. Right. So it depends like a boss like that. You can actually work with a boss like that and say, Hey, like, you know, Hey Rob, like, I know you said the slideshow, but like, how long do you want it? When's it due? Like, what do you, what's the message you're hoping to communicate with this? Like, give me some more details. Right. And so it's not always like quitting is not always the answer. And also the other side is staying is not always the answer. It's very much. And this is where the free ebook actually helps you is like, it'll give you the six types and it'll tell you kind of like how to navigate each one. And then you can, one is identify what type of boss you have. And then based on what type there's different strategies for each. Yeah. That's huge. That's huge. I'm going to link that ebook into the show notes for people scroll down, go ahead and click on it because 
one time or another in your life are going to be dealing with a boss like that. And to understand how to communicate and how to handle that situation is going to work wonders for you. Like I said, we'll we'll have you back on. We'll talk into further detail about the whole boss and toxic work culture situation. I've been there. I can relate and soak in the thousands of people <laughs> listening to this. But um, I kind of just want to fast forward with your journey here a little bit. So you had reached out to me and you were telling me like how many different therapy sessions you've been to, how many different medications you've tried. You were literally mm-hmm. going through everything. You've obviously mentioned the suicide attempt that thankfully was very unsuccessful. So it sounded like you were at basically the end of your rope and just not knowing what direction to take. You were looking for help, but you didn't know where to go. Um, and you, you found the ketamine therapy. And I want to talk about that. Like when you found the ketamine therapy, what was your thought around that? Were you skeptical at all? Or were you like, I, I need to try this. This is hopeful. And then literally talk to me about your process, about finding the doctor, walking into the office, what it looks like, and perhaps like a trip or a vision or one of these appointments and how it helped you. So people can kind of have an understanding of how this stuff works is, you know, if, if they didn't listen to my conversation with Sonny or they're just very not well-versed in psychedelics, they probably have no idea what we're talking about. They're probably thinking like the seventies doing some drugs, seeing all this weird stuff or whatever, but that's not what it is. So I'm hoping you can kind of like shed some, shed some light on this. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, what what I mentioned to you was like I had my therapist. We were doing um, internal family systems and EMDR therapy. I knew she was good. I knew we were doing a lot of work, mm-hmm. and like we were clearing trauma. We were going back through my childhood and like doing all this stuff. And yet, I still felt like horrible in my day to day. And she actually. I think we were about six or nine, six to nine months in. Probably, yeah, we were about nine months in. And we had, I had literally scheduled her twice a week for six months. And like, it was like twice a week, but then probably about once every two weeks, I would reach out and be like, I literally want to kill myself. I need your help now. Mm-hmm. And like, so it was like two to three times a week for six months. And she said to me after about nine months, she's like, Rob, like, I don't know why you're not feeling better. And she was like, you probably need to find a new therapist. And I was like, I know I don't need to find a new therapist. I see how good you are and I know what we're doing. And at that same, kind of through that same period, I had gone to my regular GP, my regular doctor. And I had done, it was probably around 10 different types of meds again. And my doctor was like throwing darts at the wall. Like, I mean, I had done like Seroquel, which is like an antipsychotic. Um, and like, we'd done everything, like basically everything. And I had even given up on meds because I was a second bout of meds I went through. And it was like, I had done, I don't know, 10 to probably 15 to 20 by that point where I was like, none of them really helped me. And like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And like, I talked to my friend who actually, (laughs) who actually referred me to IFS in the first place. And he was like, Rob, you know, there's this stuff going around ketamine. Like, maybe you should try that. 
And I was like, well, I don't have a choice. Like I was looking at, I was literally at that point looking at like the electroconvulsive therapy, like the one they shock your brain. And I was like, I don't feel good about that, but like, do I have a choice at this point? And so I was like Googling ketamine clinics in Edmonton and I found the one I go to Envision Mind Care. And yeah, it was June, 2021. I walked in, um, Oh, I got a referral from my M, my regular GP, and I went to see the psychiatrist, and we did the that intake form and stuff, and he's just telling me he was like, and the the moment I was like, this guy, I like him and I trust him, hmm. was in our first consult. It was this was before the ketamine. He was like. I have a genetic test for regular meds. Do you want to do it? In two weeks, like we'll do a cheek squab and in two weeks, it'll tell you like literally it'll be a form and it'll say like green, yellow, red for every medication out there. And he was like, yeah, you know, next time you come back in, you can do it. I was like, uh, I'm paying for it now. Let's go. And he pulled out like scientific papers about ketamine and like how it works and like how it's better and it'll like regrow your neurons. And like, this is like a very good, thing and i was like well i'm in let's go and yeah it was we started june of 2021 it was 20 twice sorry twice a week for the first four weeks and we we were doing intranasal spray so just like um yeah just like a little bottle like the nasal spray stuff um and we started like really low dose like it was like um I think it was 60 or 80 milligrams nasal spray, which is like, you don't really feel much. Like you feel like you had maybe a couple beers. Okay. Um, and even as we, as we moved up, like I was expecting, you know, like they're like, oh, it's like a dog, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was expecting yeah. like, you know, the, <laughs> the, uh, the like um, fear and loathing in Las Vegas, you know, right. like all that stuff. And I was like the first, literally the first three weeks, it was like, the first six sessions, nothing. Like I was, I brought my Nintendo Switch actually after the first session because like I didn't feel anything. I was like, I was playing Mario on the Switch, <laughs> and the people would come in and they would talk to me and they're like, they were like surprised that I was like not, you know, like some version of comatose. Huh. And I was like, I felt like I had like, you know, increasingly more beers, but I felt like I was just drunk. And then it would have been the last week where we went up to 160 milligrams intranasal. So it's, so just for folks out there, if you get the IV, the intramuscular injection or the IV ketamine, the absorption rates are like basically hundred percent, 95 plus percent. So you won't, you won't get 160 milligrams intranasal or, or intramuscular um, you'll probably get somewhere around a hundred. Okay. Obviously it depends on your weight and your, um, your doctor. Like the last time I, my doctor actually just switched to intramuscular. And last time I saw him, he gave me 70 milligrams, um, as a intramuscular injection. Um, for intranasal, your absorption rate is roughly can be a third Obviously, it depends how you spray the bottle, and it's kind of annoying, but um, just so for folks out there, you kind of know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, 
once we got to the fourth week, that's when it started becoming quote unquote psychedelic. And so like I would put headphones in, um, I got like the sleep eye mask and like you kind of like lie there for about an hour. Like the trip lasts roughly 40 minutes ish. Does it feel like 40 minutes or do you lose track of time? A bit of both. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like 40 minutes. Sometimes it feels like, like you just are in the pocket and like, you just don't even, there's no time. You're just there. Um, Sometimes when you, you start to come out, like for me a lot, I'll just like snap up and be like, I'm awake now. Let's go. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, other times you're like, Oh, I just want to stay in this longer. Cause like, this is good. So what's um, that mean? Yeah, this is good. I want to, what, what makes it good? If you can explain to people like, not sort of how it works scientifically, but what makes it good? What is happening during those 40 minutes? This is where it depends very much so i've done ketamine 50 times now roughly could be slightly less could be slightly more um but what the big part actually the big switch for me was when i had the regular prescription medication was once my brain chemistry was actually like balanced mm. the ketamine sessions very much became future focused um, they became much more about who I was and who I could be. And like, it wasn't dark anymore. Like before, because I had a lack of, I suspect I had a lack of dopamine. It was very dark. It was very like aggressive and scary. And literally the the last time I did it before I started meds, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. It was like, it was like the, the end of the four, first four weeks. I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Like that was pretty bad. And then I had that part of me that was like, no, you just got to, you know, do one more time and see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I mean, basically what happens is, I mean, two things can kind of happen. One is your brain can go back to those childhood traumas. And because you don't actually like, it's like, it's, um, Ketamine is a dissociative. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't know, for folks out there, like they invented it as like a, um, an aesthetic and then they still use it. So like veterinarians use it when they do like surgeries on animals. And stuff. Um, but you kind of can see those events for what they are and not what you experienced. And so if you also do like your own mindset work, you can actually like, you know, heal those events without, um, yeah, without pain. So Mm. like, you know, like I saw some childhood stuff or I saw like, you know, some stuff around when I was suicidal and it was like, oh, I could just go in now and like help myself, my past self out of those situations that give them empathy and compassion without it, this being this like catastrophic, like very intense moment, which Mm. in therapy, when you're not on meds, it it can feel like very intense. 
And then this, the other stuff was like this. Yeah, go ahead. This is super interesting. Um, if you don't mind me asking, I, I want to dig slightly deeper. Is like so when you yeah. when you saw yourself as a child, were you like seeing yourself as a child? Um, this is a terrible comparison, but I'm thinking of like Scrooge gets brought back to look look at like what is it like back in the day or whatever. Like, are you viewing yourself as a kid? Are you mentally there? Like, what does that look like when under ketamine and you're seeing your childhood trauma? Yeah, you see yourself going yeah. through these experiences. The, wow. Of course, this was my experience. So I had already done internal family systems therapy, which is you do that visualization work kind of as part of it, sometimes mm-hmm. at least. And mm-hmm. even in EMDR, like you will imagine these events and then you will like work through them. So like this was already something like I had at that point I had done 200 ish therapy sessions. So this was like part of like what my brain was already trained to do. Gotcha. And so like this was a safe way to actually go into those things without feeling like Sonny. If you listen to Sonny's episode a few, few weeks ago, like it has no, your protectors become offline. So there's no defense going like, Rob, this is unsafe, or you shouldn't go here because, you know, what happens if your whole system explodes? Like those things are, are, are sort of like offline. And so you can go into these moments feeling like neutral, mm-hmm. at least about them, or feeling like you are this person and like you can see yourself and it's not like you're experiencing that moment. You're just sort of like looking at it like, Kind of like, for me, it was like you're floating in a way, mm. but you see it like watching a movie and you're like, oh, I can just like take my child self out of this and they don't need to experience this anymore. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. Um, are you still doing ketamine or does there come a point where it's like it served its purpose? I'm good to go from now on or what's your process with that? I'm sure there are folks that let it go, right? Um, I think for me, I, I have, obviously I have treatment-resistant depression. And so I notice when I don't have ketamine roughly every four to six weeks, mm. I feel those like mental inflexibility coming back. And so I like to do it ideally every four weeks, obviously, since I moved to Costa Rica, that's been not possible. But like next week, I'm going to see Sunny. And I'm going to do some ketamine with her. And like when I I do also go back to Edmonton periodically, um, to do ketamine and also to get my meds refilled. Mm -hmm. But like I when I did that retreat with Sunny in uh, Santa Cruz, like some of those folks, I think they probably just did it, you know, at that retreat, or maybe they'll go a couple times a year and do it, but it's not like a, it's not like a treatment thing like it is for me. Hmm. I want to hit on something. I don't know if you've been asked this before, but I'm, I'm really curious to know, um, marrying a partner that was good for me, that supported me and my passions and everything I was going through was a really big boost to me personally. Um, 
can I imagine the same for you? Like how important was it to find your now wife and the support that she gives you? Um, would you, can I assume that you would not have been able to find her and her support had you not found this help with the treatment that you were, that you were providing? So my wife has been through almost all of it. So wow. I met her in 2014. So Holy, okay, I didn't know that. Wow. Roughly, yeah, roughly a year after the suicide attempt, I met her. And yeah, we started dating like, well, I mean, our first, we met on Tinder. So like our first date was a date. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but we were dating right away. And she was with me through the parts of like complete dissociation. Then she was with me through the like opening up the trauma and like she she has very strong um I guess like taking care of you parts mm-hmm. or like um caretaking parts, I guess is a better word. <laughs> and so like she was there for me so much that like it's unbelievable. And as I started to heal like, of course, our relationship is very different now than it was, but she's also seen me heal. And so that led her to her own journey of going on healing. Mm. And so it's been very much growth together as like I've healed and then she's going as well. And I think um, my therapist, she does couples therapy. And she said to me, Rob, she's like, you have to be very aware that like if one of you heals because your parts kind of change the relationship will change mm. and so you need to be aware of this and then the other side of it is if she goes on her healing journey again your relationship's going to change and you just have to be aware of it it's not mm. that it's good or bad it's just like what what i know like the media says like you what is it? You like the opposite of you or whatever that is. Opposites but attract, it, it yeah. was that. Yeah. It was like, I needed help and she was a caretaker and it was like, boom. Mm. But then the thing is, it's like, if I heal and I don't need a caretaker, then what happens if she feels like, well, who do I take care of now? Yeah. That's where a lot of it becomes these breakups. But because she went on her journey as well, it's like, no, we're right for each other. And now we're just evolving. That makes complete sense. I love hearing that. I I asked that question because I don't think people realize the importance of choosing a partner that's right for you and what you're going through. Um, That definitely includes mental health. Um, That includes your values and obviously finances and the lifestyle you're looking for and traveling and all that. So was genuinely curious about choosing your partner and how that helped and supported you to become a better you. And I think it's awesome in turn, you've helped her become a better her. And that's great. What you just said about like, she almost achieved her goal and helping you get better reminds me of you earlier in this podcast saying you achieved, you got the job, you're a national champion. Now what, right? So she would have been basically in your boat 
but from a different perspective, but she got the help that she needed that you just said. So your relationship continued to grow. That's awesome. I love hearing that. And that's like, Ryan, what you picked up on is exactly what we talk about in, in IFS, right? Is these parts that, that are cultivated that lead the system. Mine is the high achiever. Mm. Hers is the caretaker. Mm. There are folks that are like the people pleaser or the uh, hyper logical or the hyper intelligent or the hyper controller or the risk averse. Like there are many parts that, and also for folks out there, you can have all of them. (laughs) (laughs) So you can have all of them and they come in at different points in your, in your time, in your day, because you know, something happens that was out of your control. So your controller swoops in or like, you know, your boss says, Hey Ryan, you, you know, you should have, like, you were late on this project, so your hyperachiever comes in, right? So you have all, you can have all of these parts, and many that I haven't listed, of course, mm-hmm. and they come in at different points. But as you work with yourself and you start to realize that, like, me as self, I can lead the system in the best way possible, that's when those parts trust you enough to chill out. And you can still use them, right? Like when I was preparing for TED, I was like, I need my overachiever. Why? Because I got to do a lot of work. Hmm. But then it's like, okay, when I'm actually going on the stage, I'm like, hey, overachiever, I need you to take a break because I need to show up as me. And so it's like, it's not that you're trying to kill them off or kill the ego or whatever, right? It's like, and it's also the other side is like, this ain't going to make you soft. If you like a lot of my folks, they're like, yeah, if I do this work, like, does this mean I'm never going to achieve it? And you're like, (laughs) (laughs) not at all. Right. And so it's like, it's just be cultivating that internal relationship with all these parts. So then you can show up, you can literally lead them as like a team Mm. at the best results for you. And it'll allow you to do these things that you've always wanted to do or who you are without the, oh, you should do this or you should do that. It's like, no, you know what? I want to do it because I Mm. think it's cool or I think it's fun. That's awesome. This sounds like the pinnacle of self-awareness. It's it's funny you're saying this because, I'm not kidding, a couple of days ago, my wife and I were driving on the road and then in a parking lot, Target. So you can imagine how freaking cluttered that is. And people are in my lane. People are just cutting me off and tailgating me and i'm like what is going on and i looked at her and i said Kristen, i was like self-awareness is the most attractive thing that anybody can ever have (laughs) because (laughs) so many people lack it it drives me insane and like to hear you talking about like pulling different levers that you have at different moments i feel like is just like like i said it's the pinnacle that is awesome and i i think i think that it's a good, it's a good moment to like let people know, like how to work with you and pull those levers and how to find that in themselves. Um, I think, I, I honestly think it's a, this is a great point to pub where people can work with you and find you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. First, I mean, thank you. The other side of it is like, you're right. Um, but also it's funny. It's like self-awareness is like driving. Like everybody thinks they're a great driver. Like literally the research says that 95% of people think they're self-aware 
and only 12 to 15 percent actually are oh god um, so that's another if folks want to read that book it's called insight by uh Ta- dr tasha yurik uh, but totally recommend it um and also on her website i think it's insightbook.com there's a free self-awareness quiz oh that's so awesome it's, it's actually really cool so one is you take it yeah yeah one of you takes it you take it about yourself and then like for you ryan like you would have your wife take it about you Ooh, and then it like he sends ooh. you results afterwards i'm doing this um, i'm doing this it's yeah. awesome De- definitely do it <laughs> that's great but yeah for yeah for me i mean the big thing um and, and folks if you're out there and you're like hey i want to start tuning in I have a three minute meditation. If you just send me an email, rob at elitehighperformance.com, I'll send it to you for free. Like don't. Awesome. Yeah. So you can, that'll help you just check in with yourself, just how you're feeling. And like three minutes doesn't take too long. You can use it whenever you want. I would totally recommend you use it when you feel those, we call them red flag feelings, but like fear, anxiety, stress, anger, those kind of moments. But even just like habit building, like if you want to do it at like 9 a.m. every morning, it's also good. Mm. Um, yeah. And if you want to work with me, one is we have group programs, so you, you can have that or like on-demand stuff. But if you want to work with me one-on-one, yeah, just reach out, rob at EliteHighPerformance.com. Uh, just send me an email. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give the first five folks who reach out to me a free one-on-one session. So if Ooh. you send me an email, I will give you one hour. I won't, I won't sell you on stuff. I promise. I will literally try to help you as best as I can in that hour. And Ryan, if you'd like, I'll give you a free session as well. If you'd like to take a uh, Yeah. What? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's awesome. I yeah. genuinely appreciate that. People, you better take them up on this. This is awesome. <laughs> I've never had that on the podcast, so I genuinely appreciate that. Um, Rob, this has been awesome. I, like I said, I appreciate you taking the step to reach out, but I also appreciate you being honest and vulnerable because I think that's how you're going to connect to people. You probably felt alone throughout your journey, but you probably realize now you're definitely not alone. There's a ton of people listening to this that are going to feel exactly how you felt or close to it. And so you know, you giving them somewhat of a, a blueprint or perhaps some different ways out of their situation is beyond helpful. Um, even if one person listened to this and you changed their life, like it did its job. So, you know, I, I appreciate you diving deeper and going beyond just the surface and talking about your most vulnerable experiences and how therapy and ketamine has changed your life and how working on yourself has changed your life. Um, and like I said, I, I want to have you back on, we could dive deeper in any of this, but I also definitely really want to have you back on and talk more about like the work culture and the toxic bosses and stuff, because <laughs> man, oh man, that is something we've all dealt with. And if you have it, it's probably coming at some point or another, and if it doesn't consider yourself lucky, that's wonderful. Um, so Rob, I want to say thank you so much again. Happy 2024. I'm going to take this conversation with me. I'm going to re-listen to this again, especially as I become a dad. I'm going to check back in just to make sure I'm taking some great advice of yours. And, you know, I can't fix or control everything, but I'm doing the best that I can. So I uh, appreciate it so much. 
Thank you so much, Ryan. And, and if, if I could give anything to folks is it's that it's don't wait. Don't wait for that moment where you have to do it or you're going to die. Or don't wait for that moment where it's like you're burnt out and you like literally need six months off of work. Or don't wait for that moment where you're like, man, like I just like I'm one thing away from quitting my job. Hmm. Like reach out. It doesn't matter if you reach out to me or whoever, right? Like Sonny's great or um, the legendary Tommy. Yeah, Tommy, Tommy Breedlove. great. Yeah. Right? I've never met him, but I, <laughs> I'm a huge <laughs> He's fan. great. Yeah. Right? And it's like, it's like reach out to folks. Like that's like take action because, and I know it's hard and I know it takes a lot of courage and I know it takes, you know, a lot of time and investment and energy and, but the results speak for themselves, mm. right? It's like, and it's not even about like, oh, well, you know, you're going to get more money, which you will, or you, it's not about, oh, well, you know, you'll be whatever, more successful. It's like literally you're, your life will change. You'll feel more fulfilled. You'll feel less of this, like this, basically this like desire to like keep doing or like that, you know, that I'm just punching the clock. Like mm -hmm. this kind of like what you mentioned, like I should be doing something better, but I just like, I'm just here to like punch the clock. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you don't have to feel that way. And it's not unachievable for you to take the steps to create that life you want to live. And I know it's like corny and, and kind of like lame for like someone like me to say that, but it's like, I can't not say it because like I've experienced it. Yeah, so that's huge. It's, it's do the work and the work works. Love it. You live one life, right? Put in the work. Be as happy as you possibly can. I try not to live life with having any regrets. So if there's a voice in my mind thinking I could be doing something else or I'd be happier if I did X, Y, Z, then it's up to me to figure out how to make that happen. Um, you're the best, Rob. I really genuinely appreciate it. Thank you. And I will talk soon. Special shout out and thank you to Rob Kalvaroski for joining me on this episode. I really appreciate my conversations with people like Rob who are just so honest and open and vulnerable about their journey. And I know talking about suicide, talking about depression isn't just the, it's not the most joyful thing to talk about. And for him to put his story out there though, I think it is just so helpful for people to be able to relate and to connect to it's it's a real issue um depression anxiety it's just something that millions of us deal with today so rob i really do appreciate you taking the extra step for telling your story and how you've bounced back and how you have just a completely different outlook on life so i can't thank you enough for joining me on this episode there's no question we'll be doing future episodes as I mentioned in the beginning, I am on his podcast, The Leadership Launchpad Project. I highly recommend you go check out that episode. 
It was a great time. And I loved being on the other side of the mic, being asked the questions about my podcast, my happiness, um, common themes with a lot of my guests. Definitely recommend you go check that out. Please also follow me at the Pursuit of Happiness podcast on Instagram. Sharing is caring. So please share this episode with friends and family. I know it will help them. You never know what they need to hear. And also, if you have a moment, just a moment, leave a review. Leave a review. It is really appreciated. I'm not, I'm, I'm serious. I know you hear that all the time from, from everyone, but please just take just a second. I really do appreciate that. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you all next time on the Pursuit of Happiness podcast.